Good morning, New Hope Church. Anybody remember where they were a year ago at this time? You weren't here because everything was in lockdown, right? And this place was a dark cave, and it was just the worship team and myself and the tech team, and uh, the cameras were way up here, like um, 10 feet away, so that it could look to you at home like I was right in your living room. And I got to tell you, this is way better. I'm glad you're here. Really glad that you're here. We're all glad this thing's getting in the rearview mirror, aren't we? So if I could tell you to go to your Bible in a particular place, if you have it with you electronically or a hard copy, I'd tell you to go to Matthew 28 this morning, but there's going to be a lot of verses. They're going to come up on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, you'll see the passages of Scripture come up, and you'll be able to follow along that way. Before we jump into it, I would love to pray with you. Would you do that with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come together in in great sense of joy and anticipation because of what you have done. Easter morning revives our heart, and it it stimulates our mind, and it leaves us with a sense of awe and wonder. And I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have your way in this place right now, that you would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would sense your presence in a greater way than we have before. We can never get enough, God, of understanding who you are and who we are before you. So we pray that you would do that right now. And we pray that you would do that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. God is our uncreated creator. Scripture is very clear about that. He exists for himself and by himself. And therefore, he's called the great I am. He introduces himself that way to Moses. Moses says, what should I call you? What should I tell people your name is? And God says, tell them I am that I am. Remarkably, when God the Son becomes Jesus the man and shows up on this planet, he begins combining the I am title with these really fabulous metaphors by saying things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life, or this one. Before Abraham was, I am. Meaning that Abraham was brought into existence, but I've existed eternally. I've always been. But the big one, the foundation of all hope is found in what's recorded in Jesus' own words in John eleven twenty five. Some of you, this is your life verse. You see it immediately and your heart resonates. John eleven twenty five 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Do you know that only one dares to declare that, church? In the history of the entire world, only one person could say, yeah, me, I'm the resurrection. Everyone else has died. Only one person can say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, reason this through with me. For someone to live, even if they die physically, requires that person to be perfect, to be flawless. Because if you're going to live, even if you die physically, that means you're living eternally. And to live eternally with a holy God causes you to have to be perfect to be in the presence of that God. And that causes people to give way to the king of fear, death. 
Because the thought is, I'm not perfect. I don't measure up. Because we know that no thing on this planet is absolutely flawless. Even the best diamond of the best diamond of the best diamonds have flaws. No thing on this planet is absolutely flawless except you if you're in Jesus Christ this morning. How great is that? That is the fabulous truth of Scripture. You've been transformed from flawed to flawless if you are in Jesus and only because of Jesus. So the Bible is perfectly clear that even though you may not feel it and even though you certainly can't see it, God takes the initiative to make you spiritually flawless if you're in genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And this isn't just Mark talking. This is God's Word. Let me back it up with Scripture, Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation. No condemnation. You can't be set aside and thrown away if you're in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. You've been made flawless. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the sin and death. That means any possible reason for you to be condemned to hell has been dealt with if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's been completely taken away. Now, here's the struggle that we all have. As beautiful as you look this morning, and you do, it's Easter morning, you washed your cars, got your best jewelry out, put your best perfume on, guys, aftershave. You smell the Easter lilies when you come in. Everything heightens your awareness. We feel vibrant, as beautiful as you look this morning. I guarantee you there isn't a person in this auditorium or watching church virtually on TV right now that can't point to the flaws in their life. We all know where they're at. We didn't like what we saw in the mirror this morning when we got up. We may look good now, but you should have seen us three hours ago. We know what it feels like to be flawed. You may especially not like the way that you look spiritually. Perhaps this morning you feel deeply flawed. You know what you did five days ago. You know what you did five months ago. You know what you did five years ago. And you carry the weight with you. And you have this sense of being flawed, spiritually flawed. But the Bible's saying because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, when he sees you, if you're in Jesus, he sees a perfect work. In Christ Jesus, to God, you appear flawless. So Paul can say with confidence in Romans 8.1, no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Without Jesus, flawed. In Jesus, flawless. And many of you know this. The reason we're gathered here this morning is what we're pressing into is the magnificence of what Jesus did to bring about that reality. Last week, we're working through Palm Sunday, and I reminded you of the, the images of Jesus when this God-man was walking towards Jerusalem. He climbs up on a donkey, and we saw him very humble, and yet strategic at the same time. All humility to ride this young colt, yet very strategic in arranging all the details and that same one who's worthy of praise saying, the rocks are going to cry out if these people don't praise me. Yet that one's filled with compassion, and we find him weeping over the city. So you see this image of tenderness balanced with immodesty, like, come on, bring it. 
bring me the praise. And equal, and opposite, we see his reaction when we see the anger when he walks into the temple and he finds all the money changers and he begins flipping over the tables and chasing the animals out of the temple complex. I told you last week that was just an image of what he was going to do on the cross, just symbolic of the work that he was going to do later. And we left off last week with this image of this one in the garden on his knees pleading with the Father. Because he was fully aware of what he was going to have to do to make us flawless. Scripture speaks very specifically of what he had to do. Look with me on the screen at this. Luke twenty-two forty. 40. He sweat great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The God-man is so aware of the trauma of being separated from God, it puts him in physical, biological shock. This is a rare event, but it absolutely does happen in humanity. The blood that feeds the sweat glands causes the skin to open up in a, in a flight state where there's anxiety off the charts. That's exactly what's happening with Jesus. And where we left that with that Friday coming, as Friday brought the culmination of God the Son becoming Jesus the man so that he would swallow the nuclear warhead and take the full wrath of God. And God the man became sin. And sin is separation from God. And Jesus understood that's what was coming. So the only time that I've ever found in the entire Bible where Jesus doesn't refer to God as the Father is when he's on the cross and he screams out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, it wasn't Abba, it wasn't Daddy, it wasn't Father. It's my God. What happened? Well, in that moment, the relationship changed. That there was a breach. He had become sin for us. And that's what he's aware of in the garden, that he's about to take that on. Thomas Aquinas, when he was still alive back in 1200 AD, he was a professor of theology, a well-known individual, and, and one of his students came up to him and said, Professor, do you think that Jesus throughout his entire life retained a constant image of God, that he could see God on his throne? Were they that close that he always had an awareness of the presence of God? When I read that question, when I heard that Aquinas was asked that, my mind immediately went to Elisha in the Old Testament. Elisha's on a mountainside, and he has one of his servants with him, and they're about to be conquered by this army coming at them. They're coming to arrest Elisha. And in that moment, the servant cries out to Elisha, Master, our goose is cooked. We're, we're about to be conquered. We're going to be destroyed. And Elisha prays to God, and he says to God, Father, would you open his eyes that he could see what's really going on? And God takes the spiritual blinders off his servant's eyes, and his servant is able to see the mountainsides are surrounded with chariots of fire because the angels of heaven are coming to do battle on their behalf. Jesus is not less than that. He's not less than Elisha. He's greater than. He has a constant awareness of the things going on. 
a constant awareness of the presence of God, except in this moment. God the Son becomes Jesus the man, and Jesus the man now became sin, and sin means separation. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. And the sky physically, literally goes black in that moment. The writers of Scripture said the earth was covered with a deep darkness, and the final breath escapes His lungs, and even the tectonic plates in the earth's crust begin to shift. And in the great rift valley south of Jerusalem in Africa, I stood in that valley. I know what it looks like. The earthquake begins to rumble there and moves forward to the north. And in Jerusalem, they can begin to feel a severe earthquake because the plates of the earth are shaking and there's a trembling and all the earth is mourning. And the Bible records a megas seismos to the degree that even the Roman centurions, the soldiers who are standing at the foot of the cross, historically are recorded to say, truly, this was the Son of God. You even see this passage come up on the screen. Matthew 27, the centurion and all those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and all the things that were going on, they didn't know what to do with it. And if you were standing there that day, you would think, it's over. It's done. Praise God, new hope. That image of a bloody man on the cross is not the final image of Jesus Christ. Like 10 of you believe that. <laughs> Praise God, new hope, that that's not the final image of Jesus Christ. There, that is a little better. You're a little more understanding where this is going. You understand what's going on behind this. See, if that was true, otherwise, wouldn't we be pitiful? Like you gave up your Easter morning when it's going to be like 70 degrees today to be here. You could be golfing. You could be eating chocolate rabbits someplace. You didn't have to do this. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 19, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And not pitied like embarrassed, like losers. You got it wrong. You should have gone golfing. Pitied because there's no other hope. You understand who's writing that? That's the Jew of Jews. Paul writes that. Raised in Judaism, raised in a convincing faith that he thought he could earn his way to God, that he could do enough good things to make God like him. And then he met Jesus. And he realized all the righteousness that he had was like filthy rags. And he's the one saying, dude, if this isn't true, you are seriously pitiful. But because Jesus is more, because he's much, much more than man, he is seen again, and there's many views of the risen Savior. Did you know that he appeared to over 500 people in one setting? People saw him with the nails in his hands, the holes, and, and in his side and in his feet. They saw him eating fish. They saw him on the side of a beach. They saw him cooking breakfast, the road to Emmaus, Mary in the garden, Mary, it's me. And in that moment... Many images coalesced 
The risen Jesus was seen by many people. And in the resurrection story, there's multiple images, but one in particular I want to press into very briefly with you, what he did to make you flawless. Move in that direction with me very quickly with something that will be very familiar to you in Matthew 28. Verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. He writes first day with reference to the Sabbath. We think of the first day as being Monday because in the Western world we have a business mindset. First day of the week is is Sunday. In reference to the Sabbath, Sabbath's a Saturday, Shabbat. First day of the week is Sunday, on Sunday morning. Not just Mary's, but all the other women who saw him scourged, who saw him beaten, whipped, nailed, stabbed. They'd seen Joseph and Nicodemus wrapping him in white linen, very tightly bound and putting spices on his body. They saw that, and now it's pre-dawn Sunday morning, and they're anticipating a lifeless body. That's what it says. Verse 1, look at it. They came to look at the grave. You've gone to a cemetery before? Matthew 28, 1, they came to look at the grave, maybe to put some flowers around it, definitely to anoint his body. They came to see dead Jesus. And Mark tells us along the way what they did is they began talking about this giant rock that had to be moved. How are we going to move that? What are we going to do? And they came hoping that some way, somehow, someone would move the rock for them so they could see him just one more time. If you're a person who struggles with the reality of the resurrection, like, could that really happen? Did you know that one of the amazing proofs for the resurrection is actually the fact that the women were at the tomb? Let me tell you why. You got time, right? Okay, there's a little rabbit trail for you. Women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in the first century. To their shame, they treated women like furniture. They wouldn't be your first choice of a witness, wouldn't be your second choice of a witness, perhaps not even a third choice. And if you wanted to discredit a story entirely, you would say to the guys in your social circle, well, those women told me that, and the guys in your circle would just walk away. There's no incentive whatsoever for the authors of Scripture to use women unless it had actually happened. That God revealed himself first to women on resurrection morning is like saying to society, in your face. These are going to be the witnesses. N.T. Wright, if you haven't read his work before, it, it's uh, on the, the book, on the, it's called The Resurrection. His book is like 700 pages. So if you're looking for some light reading to do on vacation next time, pick that up. I promise you it is a deep dive scientifically, from all angles, philosophically on the resurrection. But N.T. Wright said, the authors of the New Testament in the era that they lived in had absolutely no incentive to list women as their first source witnesses unless that's exactly what happened. Because if you wanted to destroy a story, you'd quote women. If you wanted to promote a story, you would not use women. But because that's exactly what happened. In fact, when these accounts were written, even Paul says himself when he comes along, you guys can check it out. Those are, they're still living. Those people who saw him, they're still alive. That's how confident they were. 
This actually happened. Now, no sooner did these women reach the tomb than they step on holy ground, and there's another severe earthquake. Look with me again at Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The word shook in the Greek language is sio. You put your phone on vibrate and you put it on a table sometimes and it goes, eh, eh. That word sio, it's an agitation word, like the agitation in a washing machine. Not just shaking forward and back, shaking side to side like, eh, times a 150-pound person, times a 200-pound person, shaking, trembling to the degree that they could not mentally take in what they're seeing How'd you like the job of the soldiers? Wouldn't that not be like the worst job assignment ever? Your job is to keep Jesus from coming out of the tomb. (laughs) Talk about being set up for failure. The, The terrain trembles violently and fresh from the presence of the living God. A brilliant being reflecting the Shekinah glory glistens whiter than snow. And the soldiers are so awestruck by what they see, they become paralyzed and they faint. And this angel in fierce, blazing, white, hot light blows open a sealed grave. And what had taken the strongest soldiers of Rome to roll into place is tossed aside in a moment. Because our God can't be held by the limitations of this world. See, God didn't have the stone move to let Jesus out. He didn't need to do that. Scripture says it was impossible for him to be held. He wasn't held by the linen cloths. He certainly wouldn't be held by stones that he spoke into existence. Scripture says this, Acts 2.24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So why the angel? For your benefit and for my benefit to give evidence. If the angel hadn't moved the stone, the people would never be able to look inside and see the linen cloths collapse just as they were. So the angel turns his attention to the women and it says this, Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified, is not here, for he has risen just as he said. I want you to say amen if you agree to this statement, church. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is going to raise you again one day. I'm glad you're convinced of that. If you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, the same power. It caused him to rise will cause you to rise to eternal life if you receive it. Jesus placed the weight of his resurrection, the entire claim of who he is on the resurrection. Two examples for you. Matthew 12, 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so should the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's Jesus speaking. Here's another one. Mark 8.31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So resurrection 
is the proof. You're looking for proof? Most people want proof of the proof. People want proof that there was a resurrection. God's saying the resurrection is the proof. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus died for your sins and that God accepted the payment of him dying for your sins. That's why Paul could speak so plainly, Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. See, had he not, you'd still be in your sin this morning. And like, how pitiful would that be? It's essential that you understand this because with a dead Jesus, there'd be no hope be no justification before a holy God, and we would be no different this morning than the women who are showing up at the tomb who are weeping before they realize He's resurrected. They're coming to mourn Him, and we'd be no different than that if you don't believe in a resurrected Jesus. The resurrection is the proof that God the Father accepted God the Son's sacrifice. Now, because of where I'm headed in the next two minutes, you're going to think that I'm done. I'm not. Just bear with me. I wouldn't ever want to share that information without giving you an opportunity to do something with it. We're coming into a final image of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. But before we get there, I want to ask you this question. Are you not yet a believer? Do you hear this information this morning and say, I want that. I want to be flawless before God. I want what He's offering. I know I'm flawed. I know I've got baggage. But you're telling me, Mark, that God can see me as flawless this morning? You've heard the gospel. You want to be flawless? Here's what you need to do. You need to tell him that you want to be forgiven of your sin. If no one's ever told you that before, I'm here to tell you that this morning. You can do it in the quietness of your seat, in your own privacy right now. You can do it tonight in your home. You come to him and say, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sin, and I believe that he rose again. You may have come in the door this morning feeling like you're carrying an enormous weight. Sin is a weight, isn't it, church? It'll weigh you down. And because it weighs us down, it's a wound. But it's a wound that can be healed. You're in an auditorium full of individuals who understand that. You can start over again. There is new beginning in Jesus Christ. Say amen if you agree with that. Amen. There's a new beginning in him. As a result of his deliberate action on your behalf, you can be flawless in the eyes of God right now. You saw the first half of 2 Corinthians 5. Let me show you the last half. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness means perfect. Righteousness means flawless. That you can be flawless in the eyes of God is a reality. So his resurrection is the proof. The proof that eternal life waits for you and that you have complete forgiveness of all your sin. God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far do I separate your sin from you. That's why it's the centerpiece of what Jesus talked about. It's the evidence, 
the evidence that God would accept the payment. So Acts 17.31 says, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You want the proof? That's the proof. Because the resurrection is the proof, we're going to be judged by what we do with this truth. That's what the Bible says. We will be judged by that. That's why nothing less than Jesus is sufficient. And if I promise you this morning, if you turn to him, he will not turn away from you. Because me on the screen at this promise, you might want to write this one down on the back of your hand so you don't forget it. John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Right, here comes the final image. Like those who saw him on Easter morning, you too can see him one day. You will see him one day if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So let me give you an image of one who saw the resurrected Jesus. His name is John. John saw Jesus and he immediately recognized he was flawed. You know John, James, his brother, Peter, Philip, Thomas, he's one of the 12. He's one of the disciples. And he had a first-person encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and he gives us a description of him, and immediately he felt flawed. He felt worthless. He felt like he did not measure up. And before we go any further, let me paint a picture of what John saw of the resurrected Jesus. Revelation 1.13, I saw one like a son of man. Count how many times the word like comes up, and I'll tell you why in a second. I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. His face, verse 16, was like the sun shining in its strength." When I encounter people who say to me, when I see God, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, I think of that. You think that you're going to shake your fist in the eyes of God? See what John saw. See the resurrected Jesus. First person encounter, and John is his friend. He says his face dazzles like the sun at noonday in July. Did you notice how many times he used the word like? Seven times. It's just a couple sentences. Why do that, John? It's like this. It's like this. He runs out of words. He doesn't know how to describe what he's seeing. He's reaching for the best descriptor he has. In the English language, it translates the word like. It's, it's like this. His hair, his eyes are intensely brilliant, and his voice, it thunders like a waterfall. And John can barely grasp what he's seeing before he collapses, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Seems to be a theme going here, doesn't there? You see Jesus, you see resurrection power, and you collapse. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And here's a really important word for you. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. The word have is the word sheo in Greek language. It means to possess something, to be the owner. I'll come back to that in just a second. John collapses. 
And immediately the first action of Jesus is to put his hand on John's shoulder. What's he doing? He's comforting him. God reaches out and comforts him, and the comfort flows based on who he is. He says in verse 17, don't be afraid, John. And he tells you why you don't have to be afraid in death, why you don't have to fear God's presence. Did you notice that Jesus identified himself as the resurrected, I am? He didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am the bread. He didn't say, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the first and the last. That's a title church that belongs specifically and only to God. It was only ever used of God. Let me show you a quote from the Old Testament. It was used specifically by Isaiah. Isaiah was quoting God in chapter 44, verse 6, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. That means when all the gods, small g, have ceased to exist, only He remains. He existed before all false gods. He exists after them. He continues to exist eternally. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, I'm the living one. I'm the first and the last and the living one. That means God alone, eternally self-existent for himself, by himself, the great I am. No wonder John collapses. And immediately and intensely, he's aware of his human flaws, his incapacity in the presence of the resurrected living Jesus. And here's the sense that he has, and I'm sure that I'm going to have the exact same sense one day. I do not intend to walk into heaven saying, God, you know, there's some things I don't understand. You're going to have to clear up for me. I fully anticipate doing a face plant. And that's what John's doing. You wonder what the first words might be that you're going to hear when you cross heaven's threshold? Don't be afraid. I got this. And I understand it's, it's so awesome. So he has to say to him, I was dead. This word I told you is very important because in the Greek language, the word was would be more accurately interpreted. I became dead. But he's God. How does God die? God can't die. He's eternal. If God becomes man... And man has fallen, and mankind dies every day. I became dead. I became man. I became the curse. I became sin for you. I became dead, but I'm alive forevermore. See, the Greek language is very important here because it stresses this. He became the curse. But the magnificent reason that we are here today is that he did not remain dead. Amen? You got this. You understand this. Scripture says this, Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It no longer has authority over him. He's truly bulletproof. He defeated death, new hope. You get that? We shout that really loud here. 
He defeated death, so we don't have to fear death. And because of that reality, John has nothing to fear. Jesus has already paid the penalty for John's flaws. So he's flawless in the sight of God. Do you notice that he didn't say, don't be afraid to the soldiers in the cemetery that morning? There was no relationship. But to the one who he has a relationship with, don't be afraid, John. How do we know that we shouldn't be afraid? Because of Jesus' next statement, his last statement. John has nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in the presence of God because he holds the keys to hell and to death. He's playing on a first century image here. If you possess the keys to someone's domain, you become the authority. You are the one who has the power and the authority over that domain. It means you're stronger than the one who had the keys because you took the keys. To possess the keys to death and to Hades, to hell, means you are in control. But to get those keys, you had to go get them, and you had to take them, and you had to prove that you were more powerful. And the Bible says that Jesus conquered Satan. And he took the keys of death from him. Hebrews 2.14, through death, Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, freeing those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Are you afraid of death this morning? Is that the freaking king of your life, the fear of death? You're in the company of mankind. Everybody would admit to it. The only thing more fearful than dying would be to stand before a holy God and not be in relationship with Him. Because of John's relationship to the resurrected Jesus, he's flawless in the eyes of the great I Am. So Jesus puts His hand on John and says, John, you don't need to be afraid. I was dead, but I became alive. In the same way, if you came to faith in Jesus Christ 20 minutes ago or 20 years ago, Jesus has put his hand on your shoulder and he says to you, you don't need to be afraid. I've got this. I've got the keys to hell and to death. I am the one who determines who goes there and who doesn't go there. And so John eleven twenty five 25 becomes all that much more precious and much more powerful that you are able to be in the presence of God, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. Look with me on the screen, John eleven twenty five, 25, last verse. I am, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies physically. And I'm simply here this morning to ask you the question, do you know that one? Do you know the one who holds the keys to death and to hell? If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, what does the resurrection mean for you? It means no fear in death, for sure. It, It means that you're flawless in the eyes of God. And Jesus said, as a result of that, you better get out there and tell people. Matthew 28, do you remember the Great Commission? He said, get out there, tell everybody. And I want you to know there's no expiration date on that command. He said, get out there. So let's do that, church. 
Let's be bold to proclaim what we know to be true, to tell people, go tell them. I'm going to pray for you right now that you would be bold to proclaim this truth. But I want to remind you, if you're new to Christ, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you're struggling with things right now about what you just heard, there'll be elders of the church and pastors of the church over here on either side of the stage when we're done, and over at the prayer room as well. If you want somebody to pray with you, they would be honored and privileged to talk with you. I'll be here in the front myself. I'd be honored to talk with you. Right now, I want to pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, we're about to lift up one final song to you, and it really encapsulates well what we believe. We believe that Jesus came to this planet for us in obedience to you, in agreement with you, Father, that he would become sin for us and that you would pour out your wrath, but that you would raise him again. And in the same way you resurrected him, Father, you will raise us one day. And so we have pretty good reason to praise you. We have pretty good reason to thank you and to celebrate what you've given us on this Easter morning in 2021. We celebrate new life. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for those who fill this auditorium and those who are watching virtually that we would be bold witnesses on behalf of the King of Kings because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of all the praise that we can give him. His name is Jesus, and we pray in his matchless name and all God's people said, amen.